This is Crucial Tech, a podcast about technology that affects all of us in a format that allows you to consume it in the time it takes to go to and from the grocery store. I'm your host, Lou Covey, and I probably know more about it than you do. And if I don't, I know someone who does. But first... This episode of Crucial Tech is brought to you by Cyber Protection Magazine. This is a brand new publication launched in January of 2021. And while our focus is not on the engineering aspects of cybersecurity, we have found that many engineers in the digital world are just as overwhelmed by the issues as non-technical people. Our goal is to inform and educate everyone on this very important issue. The publication is free to users, and we are looking for sponsors who struggle to tell their story to their markets. Contact us at cyberprotectionmagazine.com today. That's cyberprotection-magazine.com. And let's make the world safe for everyone. This episode of Crucial Tech is going to be covering something a little bit lighter. We're going to talk about nuclear warfare. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, we're talking to talk about nuclear warfare uh, and whether or not it's a false flag of something we should be concerned about. And the reason I say that is because it seems that cyber warfare is starting to take the place of nuclear warfare. Here's, here's my reasoning. Um, I, uh, I used to work for Lockheed Missile Systems uh, for, on the Trident II missile program, and I learned a lot about nuclear weapons, and uh, it's been part of my uh, knowledge base for some time. And I have been looking into how it compares with other forms of warfare over the years. And the fact that it's not as much of a cut-and-dried technology as we think it is. Uh, most of the nuclear weapons that we have probably won't work. And I'm talking about worldwide. Uh, the, the United States, the Trident Missile Program, actually for the longest time had the, the highest level of operational success of any nuclear weapons program around. And that was 50%. In other words... Uh, if you had 10 nuclear uh, missiles on a Trident II, uh, in the Trident II program, half of them might actually leave uh, the submarine and go into the air. And that didn't count on, that didn't include what might happen to the warheads afterwards, which is why so many countries have to have so many nuclear weapons, because so many of them might fail. And I'm going to be going into this in more detail in the article that will accompany this podcast on Cyber Protection Magazine. But that being said, I decided to call up an expert in the subject. His name is Pano Yanakorgiorgis. He is a, an associate professor at New York University's Center for Global Affairs after eight years in government civil service with the Air Force, who finished his tenure recently as founding dean of the Air Force Cyber College at Air University. He's been published in Strategic Studies Quarterly, the IEEE Security and Privacy, uh, Air and Space Power Journal, uh, Journal of Information Warfare and Terrorism, as well as several edited volumes, monographs, and was the co-author of a book, The Cyber Threat and Global Civilization. 
So I thought he'd be a good person to ask about whether cyber warfare is more dangerous to civilization than nuclear warfare. Uh, part of my, my background on this is that I know how expensive and uh, manpower extensive nuclear weapons are. It takes thousands of people to develop a nuclear weapon. It takes thousands of people to maintain them. It takes thousands of people to actually put them into place. It costs a lot of money. And the thing is, if you fire one off at someone, they're going to know about it and they're going to retaliate. So this was the question I put to Pano in our conversation. Could cyber warfare replace nuclear warfare as the major concern for the world? It could in the sense that there's a taboo around the use of nuclear weapons. Right. That's that's one of them. And the thing yep. is, once you launch one, everyone knows where it's coming from and you open yourself up to a counter-strike. Correct. And then there's the ethical considerations about annihilating millions of people plus the, the environmental damages. So there's a lot of baggage, obviously, that comes with uh, nuclear weapons use. So what cyber does, I mean, c currently there's no real taboo over the use of cyber. We've seen countries allegedly use it. We've seen countries accidentally let it slip. So obviously the alleged uses, mm -hmm. the United States targeting allegedly the Iranian nuclear enterprise using a very tailored piece of malware in order to disrupt and damage civilian nuclear equipment that was under UN sanctions. So it was still illegal civilian yeah. nuclear equipment. Um, so we, we, we've seen the use of cyber to target nuclear facilities. We've also seen cyber kind of spinning out of control. So when Russia targeted the Ukraine with the NotPetya um, malware, it kind of spilt over to the rest of the world and caused disruption to global shipping, pharmaceutical production, and all that kind of stuff. And there was no real outcry mm -hmm. to that. So clearly that will not always be the case. We've seen more and more examples where governments are starting to come out and say that was wrong, but it's not the same kind of response as if there were a nuclear exchange. So um, all, all that being said, um, I think it is more likely that cyber weapons will be used versus nuclear weapons being used. But the catch is really that, you know, it, it's easy to conduct cyber crime. You can really do that with a couple of guys or ladies in a room hovered around a keyboard, churning out phishing emails and all the kinds of things that are done on that side in order to, to gain access to a system and then steal someone's bank credentials commandeer the computer for using a botnet and that kind of stuff. So that's pretty low level kind of stuff. But in order to pull off something like a Stuxnet, um, you really need a team of engineers testing environments. I'm sorry, team team of engineers, but a, a team of people that are not just computer scientists or computer networking enthusiasts, but um, you need to have people that understand the science behind the nuclear process. You need to have a team uh, that understands the engineering of um, 
power facilities. You need to have a team of people that aren't just constrained to the information technology environment, but understand how ICS, industrial control systems, SCADA works. So there's a huge personnel cost there, plus the cost of buying a centrifuge, putting it up in a test environment, and testing the malware to make sure that it's going to do that which the designer wants it to do and no more when targeting a a target like a nuclear power plant, for example. So with all of that in mind, it's still very costly to develop these capabilities. So because of that cost, national governments will still kind of, they, they might develop the capability, they might test it out, they might not get the access in order to plant it, but they might have the capability on the shelf, but they won't use it until the right time. Um, and that right time is determined by, you know, the political factors. Okay. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does, um, and, you know, on, on a broad scale. But you, know, I mean, you mentioned cost. Is the cost of developing that kind of a cyber warfare program equivalent to the cost of developing a nuclear weapon program? No. No, no, okay. no. Oh. Yeah, that, and it, let's let's see if we can drill down a little bit because, yeah, I know that you know United States, Russia, and China are not going to abandon their nuclear weapons. As a matter of fact, the the eight countries that uh, that are involved, which includes North Korea on the small scale, mm-hmm. um, yeah, they're not going to get rid of their investment in this. But right. a, a country like uh, Iran. And let's say even um, North Korea, because their their nuclear program is is so uh, infantile right now and so unreliable. Mm-hmm. North Korea has gathered between one and two billion dollars annually through cybercrime, uh, based on the analysis yep. they've got, and they've yep. used that to develop their nuclear weapons. But recently, yep. uh, analysts have been saying that. Uh, North Korea has started to refocus their cyber activities to less than destructive, uh, but more looking at the area of uh, establishing uh, a financial benefit to the country, where they're saying, well, we spent $2 billion on these nuclear weapons that don't necessarily work, and our people are starving, but we could redirect this toward actually helping our country. Uh, without having to, de- and, and if they ended up abandoning those programs, then the, uh, or the the nuclear programs, then the sanctions against them would drop. And you know, I would say that would probably be true for Iran too. Now they may not actually announce they're going to do that, but through back channels they could let people know. Well, we're really not developing nuclear weapons anymore. We're just going after your networks. Is that more of a likely likelihood than than these smaller countries developing more nuclear weapons? Yeah, that's an interesting thread. Um, I, I definitely see countries more likely following that thread of seeing this as a financial opportunity um, in order to, to benefit their countries. I, I can't speak specifically to the North Korean case, um, but but I could definitely see it as an economic catalyst while also enabling so an economic catalyst in the sense of going out and stealing technology so they can create a more robust 
tech, um, digital enterprise within their own countries, but also kind of giving the hackers um, who are engaged in this activity a free pass in terms of criminal prosecution so that then the hackers can kind of feed their own families um, while stealing bank credentials. Yeah, I, I've, I, I remember seeing a, um, I think it was on Twitter, somebody posted a picture, uh, or I think it was, I think it was actually a West African hacker who uh, was lying on the floor on this pile of cash that he was mm -hmm. making a money angel out of. Uh, and, and claiming that's how much money he was able to get using his North Korean uh, cybercrime kit that he bought for 50 bucks. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and stories like that. So there's uh, there's the... So w when those kinds of pictures float around Twitter, you know, those West African hackers, et cetera, are targeting people outside their borders. But then that's... People see the cash, they see the cars, and you know that recruits gets people recruited into criminal organizations. But at the same time, it causes people to distrust the technology because they're like, well, if the West has adopted this technology, they're getting their money winding up on uh, on the floor of a mansion in Lagos. Um, yeah. Well, I'm not going to adopt that technology because I don't want my money to wind up on that hackers for so it's going to stay off the net and that there's a ripple effect there where you know digital services or startups in those countries that might be trying to get off the ground won't have subscribers because nobody trusts the technology enough to start subscribing to it because they've seen what happens to to people that use the technology um because of the criminals that i mean People know what's going on in their environment, right? They right. They can kind of assume that there's a cyber criminal in their midst if someone goes from rags to riches in a couple of months. Okay. Well, I got, I got one more question for you because uh, one of the things I've been trying to look up is who the major players are in cyber warfare. Uh, and I'm sure everybody is doing it, but it, sometimes I see North Korea is included in the, uh, the major players, sometimes not. Uh, generally, it's, it's acknowledged that Russia is, is the, the leading uh, proponent of it, uh, and China is around number two or number three. But what do you see as the major players in, in cyber warfare in the world today? Yeah, there are various rankings out there. So I would put United States and Russia at peer capability. Really? So. That, that, yeah, was, that, was what, that was something that came out in a conversation I had with someone when I said I was writing this. And it says, well, they're just copying what the U.S. does. And I'm going, do they really? I should talk to somebody about that. So that's why I'm talking to you. So you, you put United States and Russia at uh, the, the top of the, the cyber warfare players in the world. Yeah, so because they have what – so the Defense Science Board wrote a report couple of in 2014 that basically outlined what your level of investment would have to be so that you could kind of go up the capability to become what's called a full spectrum actor and at the full spectrum you're not just exploiting things um, discovering vulnerabilities at that technical layer but you're using all the elements of your national power in order to cause effects in cyberspace. So by all elements, we mean like recruiting someone at a software company to steal code or in 
put a USB drive, um, mm-hmm. using signals intelligence in order to kind of monitor what's going on, do targeting and all that kind of stuff. So it's using all those capabilities in order to um, achieve cyber effects that are just outside of cyberspace. So that's in the DSP report. And the investment there is in the billions of dollars to kind of achieve that capability. And I think SolarWinds and NotPetya are both really good examples. Um, so with SolarWinds, you have, I can't remember the name of the company off the top of my head, but there was a company in the Czech Republic that um, was, that SolarWinds had outsourced the coding development to and you kind of raise your eyebrow there about, you know, was somebody recruited there to kind of help aid the cyber attack? So it wasn't just a network layer attack, but an outside of cyberspace um, kind of an operation. And then with NotPetya, there's actually the the Ukrainian company, the the Medoc software company. Right. Sorry, the software company that produced Medoc actually... Um, uh, discover that there was an insider um, that had aided in the development of the malware and um, and that kind of stuff. So um, that's why I kind of put Russia at that peer competitor level because they are out there investing stuff in cyber. And I'd actually put them maybe ahead of us in terms of their willingness to use capabilities. Okay. Um, so SolarWinds, I mean, SolarWinds is an access operation, but NotPetya is an example. Their use of cyber in the Ukraine, all these things where they're just brazenly out doing stuff within what they define as area of hostilities in order to achieve um, their national objectives. Okay. So Whereas have- here, we're a little bit more policy constrained. So so we've got the United States and Russia is... Um- the top two, uh, who, who's, who's next? Uh, China for sure. Okay. But, uh, it, it, I, I, what I've read about China is that they're, they're more into stealing technology and number one and number two, social engineering, uh, uh world opinion about uh, the regime. Would you say that's still the, the case? They are, but I also, so there have been an increasing number of academic articles by Chinese scholars that are talking about exploitation of SCADA, of ICS SCADA, um, that kind of stuff. So that's kind of a signal of, you know, that where, where their mind is going um, in terms of capability development. Certainly, where they have the advantages when you've stolen all the schematics, you can understand the vulnerability better and then use that knowledge to disrupt. Um, the capability. So while right now they're more focused on siphoning up the world's information, creating companies out of that information to compete with other companies and also disinformation to internal and external disinformation to shape world opinion, I think that with the access they've gained, with the knowledge they've gained and the amounts of intellectual property plus their interest, increasing interest in um, industrial control system exploitation that they're very near peer, okay. even though they might not be exercising capabilities. Now, 
when I take a look at these lists, one country seems to be missing from my own opinion. Uh, you know, I, I've heard uh, Russia, the U.S., China, North Korea, and Iran. But I also seem to, because there is so much work being done on cybersecurity in Israel, I have to mm -hmm. believe that they've got a significant cyber warfare program. Yeah, I mean, just based off of like open source reporting, you know, a, I, I think the Israelis, obviously they have the technical talent, they have the national strategic leadership that's created a brilliant ecosystem for private-public partnerships, yeah. and they've also integrated cyber into military operations. Um, that That's really the, the best model, but there's their concerns are regional, not so much global. So kind of I'm looking at the U.S. and Russia at a global and China from that global viewpoint, whereas mm -hmm. Israel could obviously do stuff globally, but their immediate national security concerns are in the immediate Eastern Med, Middle Eastern region. Okay. Well, um, I think I'm encouraged by this. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, from my background in, in, in nuclear weapons, um, they scare the hell out of me. Uh, mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that while a cyber attack could be absolutely devastating, it would not be a forever thing. We, you know, we, we, we could recover from it. Uh, and at, at least this conversation yeah. has given me a little bit of hope for the, the future. Yeah, I mean, it depends what the target is, right? Yeah. So if it's a nuclear power plant that actually melts down, you're going to have a nuclear attack via cyber means, basically. Yeah. but And the thing that scares me the most yeah. is, you know, what happens when um, all of those kind of great power competitors, mid-level competitors, start to target each other's nuclear, nuclear weapons infrastructure. Yeah. But does that send a signal of a first attack and, you know, that kind of concern of inadvertent launch of a nuclear weapon as a result of cyber espionage and nuclear command and control systems. Yeah, and yeah, I, I wrote a book last year called The Stupid Side of Renewables, and in the chapter on nuclear, mm -hmm. uh, I said, yes, nuclear is probably one of the cleanest possible, uh, but there's just so many questions about the, the, the actual construction of the facilities that make it weird to, or, or unsafe to me. And uh, I'm working on the update of the book, and one of the things I'm going to be including in there is the the vulnerability of nuclear power plants to cyber attack because they're just as vulnerable as almost anything else. And yep. that in itself tells me it's probably not a good idea until we can actually develop an effective cybersecurity program. So, um, Pano, thank you very much for this. I appreciate the time you've taken. And uh, um, I'm, I'm already clicking on, uh, doing searches on your research before. I'm glad I found you and uh, you're a good resource. Yeah, happy to talk to you, Lou, and right. hope to stay connected. So that was my interview with Professor Yanniko Georgis. Uh, it, uh, I know I was being a little bit uh, lighthearted about this, about this very uh, serious subject, but uh, it is the world we live in. Uh, 
what we may have greatest fear of is probably not as bad as the things that we don't know. Uh, This has been Luke Heavy with Crucial Tech. Um, Hope you're staying safe out there. If you have any other questions or concerns, you can go to anchor.fm slash Crucial Tech and uh, click on the button uh, that's there on the page where you can leave a one-minute audio question or comment, or you can contact me at footwashermedia.com slash contact and uh, send me a message there. Uh, And if you're listening to this on uh, our magazine, cyberprotectionmagazine.com, contact us there too. Uh, We're looking for sponsors, and this is a good place to do it. So until next time, uh, this has been Crucial Tech, a Footwasher Media production. 